welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical, environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanka and Scott Parkin. Welcome to the Silky Smooth Sound of the Green and Red podcast. I am Scott Parkin in Berkeley, California, one of your co-hosts, and as always, I'm joined by... Bob Bazanko in Ohio. <clears throat> yep. And today we're very uh, honored and excited to be talking to Cal Winslow. Cal is a social historian, educator, and author. Uh, he is director of the Mendocino Institute and a past fellow in environmental history at the University of California, Berkeley. Uh, he is author of a number of books, uh, one of which we'll be talking about today, which is Radical Seattle, The General Strike of 1919, but also is written uh, Labor Civil War in California, and then his uh, editor of E.P. Thompson and the Making of the New Left. Um, Dr. Winslow, welcome to the Green and Red podcast. That's my pleasure, Scott. Just getting started, um, just to kind of start off with a little bit of a, a topical, uh, topical subject is that, you know, here recently we've seen a lot of strikes and general strikes um, being in the, in the popular lexicon of late, uh, payday report says there's currently over 500 strikes going on in the U.S. right now. Labor organizer and historian Jane McElvey has noted that there have been more strikes in the past two or three years than in decades that preceded it. And even in a different context, youth around the world have engaged in what they call climate strikes. What is the uh, connection that you see between that and the, and the general strike that happened in 1919 and in like the last century? Well, I'm very happy to see this kind of activity taking place and building up, and I hope it's something that's going to be uh, more than an episode uh, and uh, uh, will, you know, lead to uh, a reorgani- reorganization of working class people and, and others. I guess that's really what my hope is. The um, I think the strike, in my mind, uh, really is... Uh, in most cases, uh, important in terms of uh, a tool to organize. And uh, we, in my mind, again, we desperately need working class organization uh, in the United States. So, um, and in thinking about that and looking back to uh, 1919, one of the things that I found uh, very interesting uh, in the run-up, the build-up to the Seattle General Strike of 1919 was a, a fairly long period, several years, of very high strike activity uh, uh, in Seattle, uh, mostly unlike other periods of time, uh, strike activity led by the Central Labor Council, which was the American Federation of Labor, Federation of Craft Unions, but uh, a Central Labor Council that used strikes to uh, organize, to support other people uh, in their organizing efforts, and to uh, hold off the employers who then, as always, were uh, determined to get a, a no union environment. You know, I think we grew up in an, an era uh, where labor organizations and strikes were more common, but in the last uh, couple generations, they haven't been, and people have a, a very different idea. But um, that period you study actually was a period of, of great labor upheaval, really from the period after the Civil War until kind of the little steel strikes, uh, where you had, in many cases, even violent class conflict. And, and uh, how did the Seattle strike fit within that? I, I believe there were wobblies involved and more radical unions as well, which we really don't have anything like that today. Well, I think you're, you're right about that, and we might as well face the fact that we, we don't. Um, but the, um, in that long period that you just mentioned, the period just before uh, World War I, going through the war and into 1919-1920, uh, involved one of the greatest uh, strike periods in the history of this country. People use the word, uh, ironically now, uh, an epidemic of strikes. And uh, in this period, when, when uh, 
strikes were uh, ubiquitous, it seems to me. And when a, a, a ostensibly revolutionary organization like the Industrial Workers of the World could lead most of the really big strikes, strikes of 10,000, 15,000 workers, in this period of time, 1919 was the, uh, the high point of, of that period when millions of, literally millions of workers uh, in the United States went on strikes, some of which were really gigantic strikes like the steel strike in the fall of that year, um, which involved 350,000 workers on strike, the coal strike uh, in the fall of, of that year, 1919, involved hundreds of thousands of workers in a massive attempt to strengthen the United Mine Workers of America on its southern flanks. You know, I've been I reading I've been reading your book all week, um, and I am uh, you know very very intrigued with like you you lay out a lot of the conditions in the Pacific Northwest that led up to the strike. You know, labor conditions at the ports, thirty five thousand port workers being organized, the sort of power of the timber industry and the IWW organizing within the timber industry. Um, you know, could you talk a little bit more about some of the conditions of the region that really set the stage for the strike? Yeah, well, let me just say a word first about um, Seattle, because uh, even though it was really in the far west, in the, in the northwest corner of the country, very isolated in, in that sense, uh, two hours, I mean, two days, two mountain ranges uh, by train from Chicago, a long, tedious trip, a long trip by sailing ship up the coast from San Francisco. So it was quite isolated. And uh, it, uh, a city in the West where many of the uh, new cities were um, sort of one, one industry towns based on extraction mining and timber and uh, agriculture. Uh, Seattle, uh, unlike that, developed into a, um, a city with diversified industry, um, a, city, a modern industrial city really, uh, though still surrounded by the West, uh, the Wild West as we might uh, think about it. And uh, so while it was, it was uh, surrounded by this massive uh, forest, virgin forest of, of uh, evergreen and cedar and Zitka and, and, and uh, close to the big wheat fields of the Palouse in um, Eastern Washington, and uh, the fisheries of Alaska and uh, British Columbia. Seattle itself, as I said, was diversified and modern and the closest thing to a big industry. And, and I mean that to make it sound more, more modern and less, you know, less difficult. Uh, but uh, still it had uh, its port which uh, was one of the main things that was really unique about Seattle because its port was modern. Interestingly, one of the most modern ports in the world, partially because it was a municipal port. And that is one that was run by the city, uh, a, a triumph of reformers, middle-class reformers in the area. And the port uh, itself meant that um, Seattle could replace San Francisco as the leading port on the coast because it was two days closer to Asia and Vladivostok than uh, San Francisco was. And it was the gateway to Alaska. And in our period, of course, the, the gold rush up there was sort of petering out, but the fishing industry was growing uh, exponentially. So Seattle was different in, in that sense. So then looking at the class forces, we might say, 
of course, in the region, overwhelmingly, the largest number of workers were timber workers who worked in the, in the camps, felling the trees and worked in the mills, uh, the lumber mills, which were scattered throughout the Northwest. So um, by far, that was the biggest group uh, uh, in, in the Pacific Northwest. And most of the towns along around Puget Sound had their own mills. Everett, just to the north, was a center of shingle making, Tacoma to the south, plywood making. Um, so timber was important. And we have to see that even though Seattle wasn't a lumber town, it had been at its founding, but even though Seattle wasn't it's uh, it wasn't in Seattle the main industry it it played a big role in what was to happen in Seattle so that's that's one thing I guess we'd say about we'd say about the class forces uh, the, the the waterfront the and that included of course the longshoremen who were an important group the waterfront the uh, uh, timber workers and then in increasingly important the shipbuilding industry and once the war began in Europe and the demand for basically uh, cargo freight freight loading ships um, grew uh, Seattle uh, became in a very short time the single most important shipbuilding center in the United States um, so that's, I think, uh, 30, 35,000 workers uh, working in shipyards in Seattle on the waterfront, and another 15,000 in Tacoma, 30 miles to the south, uh, more shipyard workers out in Aberdeen on the coast. So that was a very important industry. But looking at Seattle itself, um, I think it's wrong to think of just one or two industries because there was a, uh, a, a radical union movement in Seattle which uh, went right through the craft union movement. And so we could find painters and barbers and uh, uh, railroad workers and uh, I mean streetcar workers uh, in unions which were just as radical, really, as the IWW. And we have a labor movement which is dominated by the members of the left wing of the Socialist Party or independent radicals. And outside of the AFL unions, we have in the area the uh, IWW in Seattle is a kind of base camp for the IWW in the Pacific Northwest. So taken all together, and I could say a few more words about that if you want, but taken all together, it's a pretty radical uh, or explosive, let's say, a pretty explosive mixture of people. The, uh, the general section 1919, but there had been kind of a, a building up before that even. I think 1916 or 17, wasn't there kind of a, uh, significant strike longshoremen and then um, one thing that I, I think is important because I, I actually teach classes on this and write about it myself is is uh, you know one thing in the United States that we don't have is, is a, a really significant tradition of things like labor parties or even even socialist parties but the Bolshevik revolution was really important within this context I think in Seattle but in elsewhere too I've seen a lot of places where that kind of really gave oxygen to, to radical labor movements and um, you know, I think I think people don't realize how important that was within the larger context. And maybe you could say something about that. Sure. I see two questions there. If you don't mind, I'll try to answer both sure. of them. Sure. Um, the first was in terms of uh, putting this story together. Um, it's a great story, whatever. I hope I've done it justice, but it's a great story that everybody should know about. But let's just put on, on the table the utopian settlements of the 1890s when people came to Pacific Northwest and founded socialist utopian colonies. These were people who for various reasons were disgruntled, didn't like the East, 
thought in terms of the East uh, in ter uh, as, the, as capitalist centers of exploitation, who wanted socialism in the here and now. Uh, Eugene Debs, who became the icon and great leader of the socialist movement, came to Washington frequently and, and, and thought, predicted that Washington would become the first socialist state, a kind of an odd way of thinking about things, but the first socialist state in the um, Union. So we have that. Then we have the uh, coming of the um, IWW to the, to the area and the great free speech movement in um, Spokane, where uh, hundreds and hundreds of people were arrested by the authorities as the IWW uh, attempted to, to win the right to organize really in Spokane and in its hinterland, Spokane and Eastern Washington. Whereas before, they were basically excluded by the, the authorities, run out of town, not allowed into the logging towns and so forth. Elizabeth Gurley Flynn uh, of the IWW continued to, yes, a youngster really, to build up her reputation there in Spokane. You um, mentioned a bitter longshoreman strike in Seattle in um, 1916, which was lost uh, partially as happened in other parts of the country due to the importation of long, large numbers of uh, strike breakers. Uh, the Everett catastrophe uh, where IWW members attempting to uh, go up to a little town uh, called Everett, north of Seattle, to support striking shingle workers, uh, went up by boat, attempted to land. They were unarmed. They were attacked by deputies and, and vigilantes. Many of them were killed, uh, scores wounded. Uh, the the uh, ship had to limp back to Seattle where all of the people aboard were um, arrested. So looking at this overall, um, I think that the uh, idea that, that uh, the Northwest was kind of a special place because of what Debs predicted, the victory in Spokane made working people quite proud of themselves. I, I, that's what I've found. The uh, massacre in, in um, Everett horrified the people of Seattle. After all, the boats had left from Seattle and came back to Seattle and made them angry uh, and uh, uh, deepened the sense of class in the uh, city. The um, great victory, which I haven't mentioned in the woods of 1917, where the IWW led what they called a general strike in the woods for the eight hour day, which they won. All of that was very important in Seattle. And, and to the degree that those things involved other unions or the IWW, it deeply undermined the uh, segregation of IWW members and AFL members. So that's one thing. Let's, we're talking about the coming together of uh, many movements and organizations and the development of, in Seattle in particular of a deep class um, consciousness, if, if uh, that makes any sense to you. Now, um, one, one last thing of that I always like to get in, and it, sometimes it's forgotten, in Seattle there were many hundreds, if not thousands, in 1919 of workers who, who carried what were, met, were called two cards, two union cards. They carried a um, IWW card, they said, for the principals, and an AFL card for their job, because it was a closed shop town. Now, thinking about the national labor movement, how different is this, where these two organizations are basically at war around the country, and in Seattle, there's an overlapping on the shop floor of probably thousands of ordinary people who are carrying 
two cards. It seems to me that's one of the things which really tips us off about the nature of the town. So if you don't mind uh, me going on at length about that. But secondly, the Russian Revolution, because it's very important in Seattle and probably more important in Seattle than in just about any other place in the country. Um, I, I like to say that it begins uh, in a cold uh, Seattle morning when a, a, a steamer with um, red flags flying enters uh, Elliott Bay and comes to uh, the docks and announces that it's uh, manned, personed by uh, a Soviet of sailors. And this is really how the, this is 1917, the end of 1917 after the revolution. This is how uh, Seattle is introduced to the Russian Revolution, but with real people. And so the sailors, although they, they were harassed by the authorities, the, the sailors are feted, they're taken from place to place, big meetings, celebrations, and it begins uh, what I, I would call a, a period of uh, a real attachment of Seattle to um, the Russian Revolution, a, a real feeling of identification in the working class, so that the uh, paper, the Seattle Union Record, owned by the Seattle Labor Council, which became a, a daily, uh, the only one in the country, uh, work, worker-owned, union-owned newspaper, the paper had regular features from Russia, letters from Lenin. Um, they had a, actually Russian spot in times in, in the paper. And uh, the IWW at this point still supported the uh, Russian Revolution. Uh, the Longshoremen, you may have heard this story about the Seattle Longshoremen who grew suspicious when they were on, on board a ship where they saw boxes and boxes <coughs> of typewriters headed for uh, Vladivostok. And accidentally, one of these crates uh, fell and, and burst open. And lo and behold, it was full of rifles. And uh, the word in the, in, the, in the language of the paper of the time is that these workers would rather starve than uh, support the uh, white armies in, in Russia. Uh, and we're not just talking about the far left here. Uh, Jimmy Duncan, who is the president of the Central Labor Council, a good socialist militant worker, but not, not a, a party member, he routinely uh, raised uh, resolutions at the National American Federation of Labor conferences asking that the Federation recognize the Soviet Union and that it instructs its members to be informed about Russia and to uh, offer support. Uh, a lone voice voted down every time, 1917, 18, 19, you know. Um, so, you know, there's, there's all, of, all of that that's, that's going on. Now, it doesn't really, in, in a sense, it's not, not for us right now, it's not so important what happened in Russia in the future uh, as to say that in 1917 and 18 and 19, Seattle's workers looked at Russia and they saw what they wanted. They saw workers taking over the factories. They saw soldiers going home from the front. They saw peasants taking over the land. That's what they wanted and they identified very strongly with the Russian Revolution. So you're absolutely right on that. And of course, that helped uh, develop a, a revolutionary current in the working class movement itself, because here we have, not just in Seattle, but here we have uh, a working class movement internationally with the uh, revolution in Russia right there, you know, 
in, in Seattle, uh, the young uh, Harvey O'Connor, whose brilliant memoir, Revolution in Seattle, covers this period. As a youngster, he wrote in 1919, during the strike, he wrote a leaflet called Russia Did It. And it showed a, a big worker sweeping a fat little boss into a coffin. <clears throat> and they, they passed out... Uh, 20,000 of these to striking shipyard workers. So that's this, so this is a very important part of the story. Yeah, I mean, I kind of had an agenda in asking you that because I think, and I think it's still very true today, the uh, class struggle and, and anti-imperialism are you know, part of the same process. And the state understood that what the state was doing <clears throat> to the Bolshevik revolution is the same thing it was doing to, to workers in Seattle. You had this, I call containment, you know, like after World War II, the same thing you had Taft-Hartley and, and the Red Scare going on at the same time. And today we clearly have kind of some of the, that same dynamic at play. So that's kind of why I asked that. And along with that, you've alluded to this a couple of times. There's a real division within labor between the AFL and these more radical unions or even constituent unions. Were the longshoremen in the AFL at that time? Uh, yeah. Okay. So even, but, but the longshoremen, I think were tended to be farther, you know, more militant than, than many of the, the AFL unions. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? Cause we're still seeing that we had a show the other day about police unions. You can say what you want about that as well, but you know, labor itself is, is very internally uh, conflicted about many of these issues and it always has been. Sure. So um, during these years, there's basically a real uh, divide internationally in the labor movement. And let's just say for, to make it simple, between people who uh, are influenced uh, broadly by syndicalism or a workplace, uh, workplace radical, sometimes revolutionary union, uh, people who see all politics as workplace politics, basically, and uh, the more uh, typical unions that had developed uh, in the late 19th century after the demise of the Knights of Labor and other union movements around the world uh, of, of craft unions. And in the United States, they were the uh, craft unions or the unions of basically skilled workers and Anglo workers. Um, into the AFL, the American Federation of Labor, they um, they weren't really. Although they had lots of strikes, they really they didn't believe in sympathetic strikes. They didn't believe in general strikes. They uh, were not interested in organizing immigrants. Um, they believed that contracts were um, sanctioned sanctified. They um, believed that the union leaders above all costs had to, their authority had to be recognized. So in, and, and even though in this country, Samuel Gompers, their leader and the AFL unions said they were neutral, they supported the war, uh, the war in, in Europe. So really, it's quite a conservative movement. So on the other hand, we have the IWW, and in Canada and other places, one big union movements. Um, we still have in the United States what was kind of an ongoing uh, issue because the United Mine Workers, the biggest union, was an industrial union. The uh, Western miners, the Hard Rock miners, Western Federation of Miners were uh, industrial unions. So there were industrial unions. But so we have this uh, big divide. But what's, what's interesting, of course, in this period of time is that this divide goes right into the AFL unions themselves. So there are currents every place of, of, uh, workers who, who don't agree with what I just said about the basics of, of craft unionism and are not satisfied with them. Uh, and in, in Seattle, uh, probably more so than elsewhere, because the leader of the uh, AFL uh, unions, uh, Jimmy Duncan, is an industrial unionist. 
uh, he believes that the craft unions need to be amalgamated, that you need to have common bargaining uh, for craft unions, common uh, expiration dates for contracts, solidarity, you know. So, uh, and, and then it also goes over into politics because the IWW, uh, of course, was uh, very critical of the Socialist Party because of their parliamentary uh, approach to things. Um, but uh, in, in Seattle, the Socialist Party itself is a thorn in the side of the national unions because they're primarily a workplace-oriented um, union movement uh, rather than a, a electoral movement. So this is something that's uh, happening that's important in this country uh, in this period of time, uh, a real division in, in Seattle, but also internationally between two very different ideas about what a union should be. You know, and kind of speaking about the divide along politics, uh, the the other kind of like issue that I'm kind of curious about is like, you know, the, I know the IWW was like a, like supported like integration and like, you know, one big union, everyone from all races. So how much of a divide was there over like race politics at this time? Well, if we look at uh, the history of Seattle going back just a bit, it tragically uh, fits into the history of the West so that uh, the first real waves of settlers came in the 1850s and as elsewhere, of course, they destroyed any kind of, of communal uh, civilization. Uh, it wiped out, uh, it wasn't really, I'm here in Northern California, it wasn't really as grotesque, I guess, really up there as it was here, but they uh, removed, uh, murdered, or you know, removed uh, the native groups uh, from their homelands and put them onto reservations. So that's in the uh, 1850s. Then again, as was typical in the in the West, um, uh, there were anti-Chinese riots led. Uh, not just by workers, but including workers in uh, Seattle and Tacoma in 1885 and 1886 in particular, where Chinese workers who had come to this country to work in the railroads, uh, uh, built the railroads that came over um, the Cascade Mountains into the Puget Sound country. There were, I think it was 17,000 or so Chinese workers who had stayed on in the Puget Sound uh, area, and they were uh, either chased out or, uh, in some cases, murdered. So very bad, bad beginning to the story. What happens uh, later on, and uh, I think it has to do with the, um, the IWW and other forces, which I'll mention, is that the story goes in a somewhat of a different direction, which may or may not be controversial, but uh, by the time of the war, uh, the Japanese were the largest immigrant group in Seattle. There were blacks in Seattle, but about a thousand, maybe 1% of the population, uh, but the, the Japanese were a significant force. And of course, the Japanese immigrants came from uh, a country with its own trade union history, its own history of working class organization. And um, there, were, there were people in Seattle who uh, were, however we want to condition it, I would still say uh, were anti-racist. Um, uh, Anna Louise Strong, who was a middle-class uh, young woman who uh, came to be one of the real stalwarts, the, the voice in many ways of the Seattle General Strike, she'd actually been to Japan 
she toured Japan uh, with a, a program based about child welfare. She'd interviewed garment workers in Japan. Um, Kate Sadler, who was known as Seattle's workers, Joan of Arc, who was uh, sort of the voice of the workers on the street. She was a very committed anti-exclusionist, uh, anti-racist. Um, the left wing of the Socialist Party, un unlike the right wing nationalist, which really did have its rest right, right, left, <laughs> even like the left, the right wing of the Socialist Party, which had a, its fair share of outright racists, the left wing was at least in theory, and it seems to me more or less in practice in the Northwest, was anti-racist. Um, Harry Alt, the, the editor of the Union Record, um, I think you could fairly say was a anti-racist. Anti uh, Jimmy Duncan, the, uh, the, uh, the Scots metal worker, he was anti-racist. Um, uh, so th these are important people. The IWW, uh, which is contesting the American Federation of Labor on the docks, the IWW, one of the things that they're contesting is the exclusion of black workers from the docks, uh, especially the strike breakers who'd come in 1916. So we have forces uh, there in the field. We have contested terrain, really. And I think that this shows up in many ways, especially in the, in the union record. Um, it doesn't mean that uh, everybody in Seattle was an anti-racist, but uh, I think it's taking quite a different course than other parts of the country. This is, of course, 1919, the summer of uh, the horrible pogroms in Chicago and elsewhere. So it's taking a different tact uh, in Seattle. Um, and uh, the Japanese workers' unions appeal to uh, join the general strike. They make a contribution to the general strike fund, and they're welcomed into the general strike movement. And their historian says that this was deeply uh, important uh, for the Japanese workers and the Japanese community in Seattle. And it wasn't just a one-shot thing in the, you know, the the uh, the spirit of the times during the strike itself, because in uh, the movement that followed the next couple of years, uh, basically middle-class elements in Seattle and upper-class elements attempted to pass Japanese exclusion legislation, Japanese land acts to uh, restrict the Japanese from owning land. And totally consistently, the leaders of the Central Labor Council opposed those efforts. Awesome. Um, I'm going to do a quick station ID. Uh, folks, you're listening to the Green and Red podcast. We're talking with Dr. Cal Winslow, author of Radical Seattle. Uh, if you want to follow us on social media, we're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you want to become a donor, you can go to patreon.com backslash green red podcast. Uh, and if you just, that's, if you want to become a recurring donor or a patron of green and red podcast, and if you just want to give us a straight up donation, you can go to green and red podcast.org. Um, and appreciate everyone who's already been doing that. So thanks. Uh, and so Dr. Winslow, um, kind of just like kind of connecting this to like sort of like current events, uh, you know, Seattle's to me in my eyes is still very much like a, a bastion of radical politics and I'm kind of curious, you know, right now, you know, we've still, we're seeing big militant actions and militant marches around the murder of George Floyd. Like I said earlier in the show, we're seeing like lots of strikes um, and I'm, I'm kind of curious if there's any lessons that might be too strong a thing, but like inspiration that today's radicals in places like that, you know, there's the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, which is happening uh, right now. But I wonder if there's any like inspiration that uh, today's radicals in Seattle can take from 1919. Right. Um, that's something that comes up. 
And I have to say that I'm not really one who uh, believes in, in searching the past for lessons for today. The, uh, although surely there are lessons there, but this, uh, the strike, you know, was a hundred years ago. Um, and uh, there have been some huge up and downs in the uh, uh, labor movement since that time. Uh, on the other hand, what you mentioned uh, right after that was inspiration. And it seems to me what is uh, interesting, what is important is the inspiration that can be drawn from understanding just what workers were capable of doing, and I would say are capable of doing, in looking at the general strike. Uh, we haven't talked too much about the general strike, but in feeding the people and policing the streets and... Um, um, Maybe you should talk a little, because when I was reading about that, it, it really did seem similar to a lot of mutual aid stuff we see today. So if you want to talk a little bit about 1919, I think that'd be useful. Okay. Um, but, uh, you know, so that, so, uh, so there's much there, I think, uh, that's inspirational. Um, and, and I think that's what can be uh, taken from it. And as I read the current situation, it seems to me that the first time, this is the first time since really maybe the 70s, when the radical movement, uh, especially young people, have been interested in working class issues and, and unions and working class um, issues. My daughter is one of the organizers for Labor Notes, and they've been having enormous uh, meetings uh, of young people, very, you know, really youngsters, if, from my point of view, who are, who are interested in involving themselves in the labor movement and organizing. So I think that's pretty important, um, organizing. So if... Uh, uh, we, 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 if we wanted to say something about the situation today, uh, uh, and I don't want to tell Black Lives Matter what to do, I'm very happy to support them uh, in whatever they do. And uh, uh, I, I certainly uh, strongly believe that they're, they're right. But uh, we, we do need organization, I think. And, and one of the things we see in building up to the general strike is a long period of, of organization or what uh, I've kind of termed as building up an infrastructure of militant trade unionism. We can't allow uh, whatever the immediate outcome of these uh, protests today, we can't allow it to dissipate. We need to... Uh, be, be steady and we need to have uh, organizations which are ready for the the next battle no matter how long this battle takes uh, and goes on it's not going to last forever um, I think that's one of the movements of the, one of the things that happened in the 1960s as well that we came out of the 1960s with very little on the ground so that's one thing. So in terms of the uh, Seattle general strike, what was different about it than, there, there are other kinds of general strikes. I, you know, I, um, I think the word general strike, the words general strike are used too often. They're used for things which aren't general strikes. There's a, a danger. I saw someone write an article about fake strikes. There's a danger in, in um, getting away from what a strike really is. Um, but uh, the, so the, one of the interesting things about the Seattle general strike is that it was undertaken consciously, not say like in San Francisco in 1934 when uh, there was an explosion of, of support for the longshoremen uh, the Seattle general strike was, was thought out, organized, 
a structure was set up for it. Uh, 110 unions uh, endorsed the, the general strike. Um, Harvey O'Connor again said that the uh, idea of a general strike went through the working class like a gale. Uh, so big and small unions alike supported uh, the general strike. Each of the 110 local unions uh, elected delegates to a uh, strike committee. Strike committee elected an executive com committee, and they managed the Seattle general strike during its course of not really so long, but a week. And uh, in, in that sense, they managed the town. And they thought in terms of the town, Anna Louise Strong's editorial, uh, in, which uh, got a lot of attention internationally, really, included the idea that Seattle's workers would, would not just leave work, but they would take over the running of the town. So, which they did. So how were babies and, you know, mothers and, and children going to get their milk? A big issue uh, in a working class community. And they're basically shutting down the, the, the uh, distribution network, which exists. And, uh, Seattle's workers don't have cars in these days, so they set up an elaborate system of distribution of milk for uh, moms and their children. Um, what about sanitation? They couldn't have, I, I lived in New York, I think, when, during one of the big garbage strikes. They couldn't have uh, a situation where the, the, where the city became an unsanitary place. So they made an exemption for what we might call the sanitation workers or the garbage workers. Uh, and the trucks would roll by with a sign on the side of them saying that they had the approval of the strike committee to be working. What about the hospitals? Well, uh, these were certainly essential in our language today. And so they exempted hospital workers so that the, the sick uh, could be looked after. And um, right through, into, they turned down. Some streetcar workers came along and said, well, people need streetcars. And the, and the strike committee said, no, you're on strike. Um, they even shut down, probably as a mistake, their own newspaper, uh, the, the union record at first. So... The feeding stations, I think, are one of the most interesting uh, examples. At one point, they, the Jimmy Duncan called them, it's kind of a weird term, feeding stations, but they, at one, at, through the mid, mid days of the strike, they were feeding 30,000 or more people a day, and these would be people probably who didn't have families to dine with. Uh, single people or poor people, <coughs> um, 30,000 a day uh, around the city with, with st uh, stations in uh, churches and union halls and community centers. Uh, and what, what about this? Well, to me, the Seattle general strike has been criticized because uh, Apparently, I don't know if people would say this, but I think they think, think it because it somehow wasn't radical enough because it wasn't uh, uh, bloody uh, because the streets were quiet. But these, these, all these places that I've just mentioned were centers of working class organization and creativity. Because the executive committee could say, well, we need to feed people, but they couldn't do it themselves. And so on the ground, ordinary people organized uh, a way to feed the people of Seattle so that uh, I noted in, 19, in, in the strike, it was probably the first and only time before or since that no one had gone hungry uh, in, the, in the city of Seattle. Uh, then on the streets, one of the big worries was 
that the labor movement, especially the IWW, were very uh, familiar with the fact that the authorities were quite content to provoke workers, to uh, badger them into uh, conflict, which they couldn't win. Um, the, as as the uh, an editorial in the Union Record said, we know that Camp Lewis, 30 miles to the south, one of the biggest camps in, in the country, was full of soldiers being de demobilized, that across the uh, sound, the Bremerton shipyards were... The area was bristling with military. And uh, in the city itself, the middle classes were arming themselves and deputizing people. And uh, so uh, they were, this was all taking place in the con context of a working class, which is really not armed, not in a position to uh, seize City Hall by the force of arms. But what they could do, and they did do, was to create a worker guard which kept the streets quiet, and the IWW joined in with this, which kept the streets quiet, which avoided unnecessary confrontations and the possibility of violence with the authorities. And that, too, it seemed to me, was a uh, very interesting uh, example of, of sort of cooperative uh, activity and of, of managing uh, a city. The, the police really just had to stand by. And the generals, as I said, they dared not, uh, uh, you know, attack a city that was peaceful and that was so, uh, and whose labor movement was so universally uh, respected. Uh, I hope that gets uh, a bit to your question. I think it's a pretty important question. Yeah, I know, but historians love to think that what they're doing is absolutely relevant and essential to today, and I actually agree with you. I'm not sure how much the, the lessons of history really apply, especially a century later. But I think one thing that actually is important, because right now we're seeing a lot of uh, talk about um, provocateurs and government repression and things like that, and I think people need to understand that's part of the playbook, and it always has been. In 1919, it was Bolsheviks, and today it's Antifa. And so the state, you know, kind of has always played that, and, I, and uh, you know, and it's been a way to divide labor. Uh, this isn't really, you know, kind of pertinent to, to what you do specifically, but I'm just curious what you think about the, this issue, which I think is becoming more and more important, uh, about police unions being part of uh, central labor councils or the AFL-CIO or, or any other labor group. Well, that uh, turns out, as you know, I'm sure, to be kind of a complicated um, issue. In 1919, there was a police strike in Boston. In Boston. Yeah. Calvin Coolidge broke it. <laughs> yeah, one of the big strikes of the era. And the labor movement supported them. Um, would you oppose the police strike if they were, uh, you know... Asking I, I wish they'd all go on strike right now. <laughs> so, uh, so that's a difficult thing. And I know it's a, it's a, a debate in the union movement and, and amongst uh, the left. I'm, I, uh, today, given the situation in the United States with the militarized police, I think we have a somewhat different uh, situation than other countries and, and other times in the past. We have a, a real problem with the, what, what I read about the warrior culture of the militarized police. So I'm entirely sympathetic with the Seattle Labor Council in their chucking the police unions out. And I just hope that right now they'll keep them out and if the police unions, I think the police have the right to, to, to organize. But if the police unions want to be part of the labor movement, they have to be part of the labor movement. They have to agree to the principles of the uh, labor movement. And of course, that's going to take a, a, you know, a change, which I don't know if really it's even imaginable within the police forces um, in the United States. Um, my take on it is that 
as the uh, the demonstrations uh, in the country have become somewhat less militant, we might say, even though they're still very large over two weeks, the police have become just worse. They, they've been on a kind of national rampage in, in the country. And uh, we just, to whatever we can, to whatever we can do, we just can't stand uh, for it. And I don't mind having a debate about defunding the police. Um, uh, it's a it's a good good debate to have. Um, and if some people want to come in and tell us we want to abolish the police, let's hear what their point. Let's hear what their point is. But a, a decent society can't have the kind of militarization of police forces that exist in the United States today. But that's got nothing to do with Seattle. <laughs> no, that's okay. No, actually, you know, I mean, Seattle right now is, I think, you know, uh, it's always been really kind of a vital part of the American economy as well. Boeing and Microsoft and even Starbucks. And, and it's uh, has a long radical tradition. So I think that that there's a lot we can find in there that's that's somewhat useful, uh, you know, to, to ponder about. Yeah, I, I think a, like a last question I have is around backlash. And so we know that there was a, a red scare, maybe the first red scare kind of came up around this period. And I'm wondering, you know, once the strike ended, you know, what was, I'm sure there was a backlash from the ruling class. What, what did that look like? Well, you know, there's a big, not a big debate because there hasn't been much debate, but uh, for many people, the Seattle strike is written off as a failure and uh, something that uh, doesn't deserve anything more than really a footnote in labor histories. And this goes not just for people on the, in the mainstream, but people on the left. And I, I argue that, uh, and I quote my mentor, E.P. Thompson is saying, this is a, this is a example of the um, consent, con consent Consendenting, kind of. What am I doing with the, of the, of the attitude of of people toward the past, and uh, the Seattle workers built one of the great movements and strikes in our histories, in our history, which really can't be and shouldn't be written off. So uh, uh, condescending. What's <laughs> <laughs> so the condescending of uh, the, the uh, toward the past. So, so that uh, is important. It seems it seems to me, and it's something that happens uh, elsewhere, not just with um, uh, Seattle. Or I mean, people like to think, as you just mentioned, uh, Bob. Of, oh, everything's you know we think we do things different now. <laughs> you know, we've got <laughs> we've got everything controlled under control now we've uh, so uh, so that's one thing but uh, another kind of unique thing about the about Seattle and this was uh, researched some time ago really in the 60s by a historian named um, Preston uh, in many ways the national red scare really developed in the Northwest in opposition to the big timber strikes the uh, lumbermen were desperate to have federal uh, intervention in the strike, including soldiers and martial law. And they uh, uh, pleaded with the, what was then the Bureau of, of, of um, Investigation, which became the Federal Bureau of Investigation to come to the Northwest and essentially to wipe out the IWW. And I have a, a, a quote in my book from the, the internal, the uh, National Internal Attorney General, where he actually says, well, I, I, I guess I, as my job as I see it is to wipe this bunch out. And so that began really before the big national red scare of, of 1920, really, uh, the deportation of, of immigrants began out in Washington State in 1918 and 1919. And it was just as crazy and as horrific as it was in the rest of the country. 
So in many ways, I think the response of the authorities, you called it a backlash, to the movement in Seattle uh, was very important uh, and uh, played into the national uh, repression, just like the Seattle general strike itself helped kick off the, the militant uh, strikes of, of 1919, the other side of the um, coin. Uh, the repression uh, was important in the Northwest, but a sign that the strike was not defeated and was not uh, irrelevant is the fact that once the strikers went back to work, the authorities left them alone. They didn't dare go in and arrest the leaders of the general strike, for example. The, I would say because the labor movement was that strong. They arrested a few IWW members, a few well-known left-wing socialists, but they didn't dare take on the labor movement. And Seattle remained strike-prone in the next years to come uh, until really the Depression of 1920 and 21 put a damper on everything in the country. The, the readership of the Seattle Union record grew to 120,000 uh, people, more than the mainstream dailies. So, and, the, and the workers themselves, there's no sign in the evidence from the time uh, that they felt that they had been defeated. They felt, as far as I can uh, see in the evidence, they felt that they had done what they went out to do, and that is that they they showed support for the shipyard workers' strike. They showed that the working class was powerful uh, and united. They showed that the general strike could be used and uh, that it didn't necessarily have to lead into a, a bloodbath. Of course, the other thing about the, the repression, unlike so many other strikes, is because it was the strike was, was really a, a general strike. There were no picket lines to bust up, right? There were no, uh, you know, so there, there's, there are no mass arrests. So the labor movement doesn't have to begin uh, a, the job of defending, getting, getting people out of jail, lawyers' fees, getting you know, people out of the hospital, you know, fighting... Uh, some people lost their jobs. The labor movement was very well positioned to see to it that they got their jobs back. So that's not a labor movement has been, that has been defeated. And around the country, people looking at it saw it in terms of, wow, you know, this is something that can be done. Uh, and uh, Max Eastman, the editor of the magazine, Liberator at the time wrote an editorial and said, this really is uh, an example of the hope of mankind, that working people, you know, can reshape uh, uh, the world in a, in a decent, uh, into a decent place where ordinary people can live decent lives. Yeah, if anybody, uh, as you should be, is, is uh, perturbed, appalled by Bill Barr, check out a uh, do a Google search on A. Mitchell Palmer. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Cal. It's been great having you on. Uh, I didn't know until I was looking you up the other day that you were a student of Edward P. Thompson, who has been obviously inspirational to so many of us, even who didn't work with him or know him even. So uh, thanks for talking with us and for all the great work you're doing. And uh, I know that, you know, you've written a bunch of stuff, including an article recently about the, uh, the Spanish flu and the strike, which is timely today as well. So thanks very much for talking with us. Yep. Well, thank, thank you, you. folks. Folks want to get the book. Oh. Yep. <laughs> I was just gonna say, if folks want to get the book, Radical Seattle, The General Strike of 1919, highly recommend it. So is that um, Verso published it, I believe? Uh, monthly Review. Monthly Review, okay, sorry. Uh, monthly Review Press, so you can go on their website and get it there. Yep. Thank you so much. It's been great talking to you. <laughs>